Well, as we come now to the Word of the Lord who in fact reigns, uh, I want to begin this morning by sharing a story that I've told here probably twice maybe over the years. So it might sound a little familiar to you, but, um, but even if it does, it's good for the soul. It's a very challenging, I think in a really wonderful way, kind of a story. And the other thing that it does is it illustrates almost perfectly the point of the message today. And let me give you the point of the message today in advance. I'm going to give it to you, then I'm going to show it to you, then I'm going to give it to you again so you don't miss it. The point of the message today is this, that the kingdom of heaven, and I'll tell you what that is when we get there, is worth our everything. That's it. It's not the kingdom of heaven is worth almost everything. It's not the kingdom of heaven is worth most of my everything. It's not the kingdom of heaven is worth 99.9% of my everything. That's not it. It's not enough. The kingdom of heaven is worth our everything. It's worth everything that we are. It's worth everything that we have. It's worth everything that we own. It's worth every drop of blood that runs in our veins, in that of our husbands, in that of our wives, in that of our kids. Is that intense enough? Is that high enough? It is infinitely more valuable, okay, even than that. So try to get your mind around that. The story is this. It's that back in the early to mid-16th century, during the time of the Protestant Reformation, John Calvin, one of the reforming fathers, he's one of the fathers of the Protestant Reformation, was exiled from his native country of France to Geneva, Switzerland. He was exiled because France, like many other countries, was a Catholic-controlled country. And in those days, that was a hostile situation. Not now, but definitely then. So Calvin fled to Geneva, and what he did in Geneva is he formed a seminary, and at that seminary, he trained young men up in the Reformed faith, and then here's what he did, and this should sound familiar to you if you've been with us the last couple of weeks, he sent them out as church planters back into these Catholic-controlled countries that, again, were incredibly hostile to the Reformed faith, and to give you a feel for just how hostile they were, the average life expectancy for a graduate from Calvin Seminary was six months. So you feeling that? You sign up for seminary, you study semester by semester, your dad's cutting the checks, you graduate, and within about six months, you're murdered. Feel it. That changes the whole dynamic of graduation day, does it not? My experience, at least, is that graduation day is typically a pretty happy affair, Your parents are there. Your grandparents are there. You know, if you're married, your spouse is there. If you have kids, they're like, they're all there. All your friends are there. Like pretty much every significant person in your life shows up. My aunt from Minnesota came to my high school graduation. Now she does live in Minnesota. But seriously, and hopefully they show up with a check. That's the deal. So it's smiles and it's cards with checks and it's presents and it's parties and it's a big feast and it's woohoo and it's all of this expectation about the life now that you're equipped to go out and begin to pursue unless you graduate from Calvin Seminary, in which case, congratulations, you have about six months to live. And I say about because, hey, you could go in one month and knock the average down. So there are documents that have survived to this day. So we have, for example, the forged passports of these people who went in and out of these countries seeking to conceal their identity so that they can stay alive, you know, I don't know, maybe seven months, maybe eight months. Good grief. You're a long timer. So they could do more preaching of the gospel, so they could do more sharing of the gospel. We have written accounts of what happened to many of these people. 
So there's an account, and I've shared this before, but there's an account of this woman who shows up at John Calvin's door in the dead center of the middle of the night, and she's pounding on his door and literally screaming bloody murder for him to come to the door. And he comes to the door, and he finds this young lady dressed in her nightgown, covered in the blood of her husband, who was one of Calvin's graduates, who together with her had gone to France to plant a church, who had come back with her on furlough, for rest, who was followed back across the border by some assassins who murdered him in his bed while he slept next to her and she woke up next to him like that. So you hear that and you think, man, who would go to that seminary? Would you go to that seminary? If you felt like God was calling you to go to that seminary, would you go to that seminary? If you felt like God was calling you to go to that seminary and John Calvin was raised from the dead and here in person in the flesh today with the coolest, most persuasive display ever created for a seminary, would you go to that seminary? Would you go to that seminary if you felt like God was calling you to do that and Calvin was here in the flesh and he had the persuasive display. And God then appeared to you personally and said, listen, you didn't get it the first time. You need to go to that seminary. Would you go? Would you sign up your son or daughter? Would you do that? Because I think I'd rather go instead, wouldn't you? That's a higher price. Every time you wrote the check for the seminary, you'd feel like you're writing the obituary of your child. It's a little intense. Did you marry someone who attended that seminary? Did you let your husband or wife go to that seminary? All right, so here's the real question. What is the vision that John Calvin held before these people, these parents, <laughs> these young men and women that was so beautiful, that was so large, that was so big, that was so compelling? And here's really the key issue. This is what we're dealing with. That was so valuable. Value is the topic that they willingly signed up. What was it? Simple answer. It was the vision of the kingdom of heaven. You're like, yeah, sorry, that doesn't help me. What's that? It's Jesus' favorite way of describing his mission, what he's up to, where this whole project called Christianity and the gospel is going. You're like, nope, still doesn't help me. Okay, it's thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We prayed it. Does that help? Maybe not. So here's what it is. It is the total transformation of this sin-stained, sorrow-filled, filthy, chaotic, broken planet into a planet that is very different. It's peace-filled. It's joy-filled. It's pure. It's unbroken. Guys, if you've been with us the last three weeks, we've been looking at the new heavens and the new earth and who and what we will be like within them for all of eternity because we have faith in Jesus. And that's what he's won for us. It's that. And that right now, today, is worth our everything. And not just according to Calvin, but according to Jesus, who says as much in Matthew 13, beginning in verse 44, where he says this, Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven, so that's what we're talking about, is like, so now he's going to give us an analogy. He wants us to know what it's like. He's going to tell us its value. He says that it's like a treasure that's hidden in a field, which sounds a little bit odd to us because, you know, we don't hide treasures in the field. But they did. 
So the people in the first century listening to Jesus tell this parable in the next one as well kind of understood that, look, for thousands of years, literally, the land that they lived in over there that we call Israel today had been fought over by nation after nation after nation after nation after nation. And every time an invading army for literally thousands of years invaded the land to take it, what did the people of the land do with their treasures? They hid them. They hid them in their walls, and they hid them in trees, and they hid them in caves, and they hid them under rocks, and they marched out into their field, and they buried them in the ground, hoping to survive the invasion. And after the invaders left, at some point at least, to recover their treasure. But they didn't always survive the invasion. Sometimes they were killed in the invasion. Sometimes they were taken away as captives in the invasion. Sometimes they, you know, just lost their map and they just started digging hole after hole in their field. Son, get a shovel. We've got to find our treasure. And they never found the treasure. So they understood in that land that even now there are treasures buried in the ground and every once in a while anyway, somebody comes across one. So that's what Jesus is imagining here. He says, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. And they're like, okay, yep, right on. We understand how that works. And now notice what else happens. He says, which a man found and then having found it, covered it back up again. So he comes across it and he reburies it. Now, why does he do that? Because he doesn't own the field and he wants the treasure. And that's a little bit of an irritant to us too, because we look at that and think, man, that's just kind of unethical. I mean, shouldn't this guy in the story that Jesus himself is telling Take the treasure to the man who owns the field. In our day, yes. In his day, no. Everybody understood as well, again, that these treasures had been in the ground for hundreds, sometimes for thousands of years, long predating whoever owned the land at the moment, long predating the previous 50 owners in some cases. So they understood that he was under no moral or ethical obligation to now bring it to the guy who owns the field. The rabbis had ruled on these things, but he does now need to buy the field to establish clear title to the treasure. He has to purchase it. So the picture that Jesus paints then is this guy who is a plowman, and he's been hired by the owner of a field to plow the man's field, and he's out there plowing his field. He's just doing his regular thing. He's a regular guy. He's not expecting treasure. He's not even looking for treasure. He's looking for shade because it's the Middle East and he's dying out there in the sun. So his sweat is pouring, his feet are searing, he's plowing row after row behind some stinky animal when all of a sudden he feels and hears in all likelihood the plow hits something that doesn't feel or sound like a rock. So maybe it's the clank of metal, maybe it's the shattering of a clay pot. We don't know what it is, but it's enough to make him stop, get off the plow, get down on his hands and knees, and with his hands begin to dig in the dirt to figure out what in the heck it is that he hit. And slowly by surely, he begins now to uncover some kind of a container. We don't know how long it is or how wide it is or how big it is. We only know that when he finally unearths it and takes off its lid and looks inside of it, he sees treasure. And then here's what happens in his heart. It's filled with joy, man. Why? Because finding treasure always fills the heart of the treasure finder with joy. And the reason for that is simple. Because every one of us knows that treasure is really, really valuable. The only question is how valuable. And for that, we need an expert, do we not? And since the treasure we're talking about here, Jesus has already made clear, is the treasure of the kingdom of heaven. There's exactly one expert, just one. And it's the guy telling the story. 
The man from heaven alone can speak accurately to the value of the kingdom of heaven, and that's exactly what he's doing here. When he says that the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up, and then what? In his joy, not begrudgingly, not out of duty, not out of expectation from anyone, cheerfully. In his joy, what did he do? He waited a couple of years, and then we got around to it. He sold off some small portion of his estate, you know, and then he went down and he bought the field, and he established clear legal title to the treasure, and then it was his end of story. That's not what happens. That's not what happens. That would not be in keeping with the value of the treasure. In his joy, he goes out and he sells all that he has and he buys the field to establish clear legal title to the treasure and then it's his. Why does he do that? Because the treasure that is the kingdom of heaven is worth our everything, not most everything, not some of everything, all of it. And it's with great joy that we give to get it. And since we need to hear that more than once, Jesus says it again, verse 45. Parable number two, he says again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls. So there's some difference to this story. Like unlike the plowman, this guy's actually looking for treasure. So you see that difference. And then unlike the plowman, who's just kind of a regular dude, the merchant that he's describing here is not regular at all. He is a fabulously wealthy man. He is not describing here, and I want to be careful how I say this, a mere jewelry store owner. And I don't mean to disparage you if you own a jewelry store, but I want you to see the difference between this guy and those who own the jewelry stores. This is one of those rare few pearl wholesale merchants who moved and operated in those days and in that time period in the pearl sheikdoms of Persia, who is then invited by one of these pearl sheiks into his tent. And after the endless greetings and ritual formalities, he's then invited into the heart of this man's tent, into its inner sanctum. And he watches by the light of these oil-burning lamps as this man, with trembling hands, pulls out a silk purse. And he reaches into his silk purse, and out of it, he pulls out a giant pearl of perfect proportions. And then the treasure hunter's heart is filled with joy. Why? Because finding treasure, guys, always fills the heart of the treasure finder with joy because it's valuable. And he knows it's valuable and everybody knows that it's valuable. It's, it's priceless. It's It's unbelievable. We just don't know how valuable. For that, we need an expert. And since we're not really talking about a pearl, it's just, it's like that kind of a pearl. Only Jesus can speak to its value. It's exactly what he's doing. He says, again, the kingdom of heaven is like that kind of a merchant in search of fine pearls who on finding one pearl of great value, waited a couple of years, and then we got around to it. He sold off some small portion of his enormous pearl empire, for that's what he had. He supplied all of the jewelry stores in a given region of the world. It was a big deal. Nope. Here's what happens. The kingdom of heaven is like that kind of a merchant in search of fine pearls who, on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. 
But again, why? Because this treasure that is the kingdom of heaven is worth our everything. And Jesus isn't saying, hey, you know what? If you want salvation, you need to go sell all that you have and it's for purchase. It's not it. He's saying, listen, this kingdom that ends in this eternal destiny for everyone who has faith in Jesus is more valuable than anything you have, anything you are, no matter how much or little that may be. It's worthy of the investment of the whole of you. And John Calvin got that, and his graduates got that, and their families got that. And you know who else got that? The people who founded this church. I think I said a couple of weeks ago, you know, one of the things that that we've been doing is going back through the history of this church, and it is a rich and profound and amazing history. So I want to tell some of it to you, and I want to introduce you to some of these people. Back in 1940, two families named the Harwells and the Mortons collected signatures on a petition to establish a Southern Presbyterian church in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. And then, and I need to read you the date, and not just the date, but the day and the time, because here's how they recorded it. On Sunday, May 19, 1941, at 3.30 p.m., in the Elks Building here in town, the Presbytery granted their petition. And I kind of thought that was funny, you know, like, why not just give us the date? Why the day, why the time, why the place? Then I realized the answer, because it's precious. It was precious to them. It's precious to me. That was about 24 years or so before I was even born, and I realized in light of the impact that this church has had on my life and my family, that's a very significant date for me. I'd argue the same for a lot of you. So on Sunday, May 19, 1941, at 3.30 p.m. in the Elks Building, the Presbytery granted their petition, and then those two families traveled down to First Presbyterian Church in Hollywood to talk to one of the pastors on their staff to see that if he would come and become the first pastor of this church and plant this church. His name is Marshall Pilkington. He agreed to do that in October of 1941, which means this October is our 75th anniversary as a church in this community, in this city. Bethany Presbyterian Church, which is our former name, was formed by these men and women. There were 31 founding members, and I want to show you some pictures of some of these guys. So these are the first four elders of our church, and uh, you can see their names underneath it. The only one that you would recognize, you'd recognize because I just told you who he is, is this man here. It's Mr. Morton, one of our founding fathers. The next picture is a picture of the first executive board, I think, of the women's ministry. And you can see the ladies all decked out with their beautiful hats. Isn't that awesome? Okay, so the lady in the middle is Mrs. Morton, and the lady right here in the white is Mrs. Harwell. They are the matriarchs of Bethany Presbyterian Church and Rio Vista Community Church, and the next picture is our first pastor. There he is, Marshall Pilkington. Said that he was good at like swinging a hammer too, incidentally, so he outpaces me in a lot of ways, I guess. My wife just calls Ken Nordstrom and says, you know, we got a cabinet that needs to be fixed, and somehow magically then that happens. But after getting this church going, They met in the Elks building, and they met then uh, in the Masonic uh, building. Uh, They set about building the platform for the ministry that is this church. So they purchased a manse in this neighborhood, and a manse is a church-owned house that the pastor and his family can live in. Guess how much they purchased a property, a house in Rio Vista for? 
You ready? $1,009. They probably fought over that last dollar, don't you think? No, man, I can't go lower than 1009 And Mrs. Harwell cut the check on that. And they then purchased the property that now encompasses the whole of Bethany Christian School on the two-lane road that was Federal Highway for $4,000. Sounds like nothing to us. But it was still Federal Highway property. It was still Rio Vista. It was a lot to them. Now, why did they do that? Well, for two reasons. Number one, they did that to establish a platform from which to launch ministry into this city and into the world. And number two, because the kingdom of heaven is worth the sacrifice. And so then in February of 1942, construction began on the first sanctuary, which is now our school gym across the street. And it was completed in October of 1942, so a year after they did their first service. And then it was dedicated, and I want you to get the date on this, on February 21. Sound familiar? That's today, except it was in 1943. And I want to show you a picture of the first sanctuary. There it is. I will never forget the day that Hurricane Wilma blew through and I'm coming up out of the tunnel with my kids in the car and I see the school gym and that steeple was laid over on the side of the roof. It's sad that we lost that thing. I may have uttered a word I should not have. I was there when the crane took that thing off of the roof and it had like a scale on the crane. It was weighed over 10,000 pounds. And they laid it in the parking lot, which is right here. And you could look up inside of it and see that it was made by carpenters. It was all handcrafted, board by board. Pretty amazing. Pretty incredible. Then the next year, in 1944, they added the Sunday school wing here, which is the first floor of Bethany Christian School. And then from that ministry platform their ministry to the city and to the world blossomed. But it particularly blossomed after they brought in Pastor Larry Love and his wife. And that's actually the next picture that we have. That's Pastor Love and that's his wife there when they came to the church. And all of this stuff was all chronicled in the newspaper. It's amazing. From this platform that was Bethany Presbyterian Church at the time, Pastor Love and his wife began what was called the Bethany Back Home Radio Show in 1947. In that same year, They established outreach ministries to the Seminole Indians, to Asian, Italian, and African-American communities here in South Florida. And then, in 1948, they expanded the platform again by adding a second story to that building, which is now where the attic is located on the north side of Bethany Christian School. So they built that in 1948. And in 1949, they expanded the platform again by buying the property that we're all on now. Are you ready? For $3,500 cash, including Domino's. Let me just kind of breathe deeply for a moment, all right? (laughs) So here's the deal. Once upon a time, there were missionaries in crisis, and they peeled off the front portion of this property, the most valuable piece, and they sold it to help those people. I don't like that decision, but man, the heart behind it is awesome. And that's the heart of these folks. That much is so incredibly clear. Now, why did they keep building the platform. Why? Because I think it's a very incredibly relevant question so that they could 
build a greater platform to launch even more ministry into this city and into the world. And because, frankly, the kingdom of heaven is worth the sacrifice. And so they made the sacrifice and they built the platform. And immediately after that building expansion where they put the second floor on, which is now the attic and the purchase of this land, they then began in 1949 sending out actively missionaries and planting churches. So in 1951, they planted Covenant Presbyterian Church. And we have a picture of one of the bulletins from Covenant Presbyterian Church. And this says, I don't know, you can read it. It says, Proposed Completed Church. This church is located on Northeast 26th Street in Wilton Manors. If you drive through there, it's still there. It's now the new Presbyterian Church, so it's a little bit different in terms of name and people. But that was the building that they envisioned when they planted that church. If you drive by it, it looks very similar to that, even to this day. In 1951, they sent out their first international missionary, a lady, a physician, I think, named Dr. Joyce Koch. She's the next picture. She went to northern Nigeria to minister to people with leprosy. As a young lady. It's pretty awesome. In 1951 as well, this is the next picture. The Reverend Billy Graham came to Bethany Presbyterian Church, and in our school gym on a Thursday night, at 7 and at 8.15, did evangelistic services in our city to overflowing throngs, according to the newspaper. And you see Pastor Love here and Dr. Graham here. It's pretty amazing, back in early 1951 as well, the young people, I just say it because that's the way they described it, began ministries. Now, I'm going to use this language. Don't throw tomatoes at me. Just You're going to see why I used it in a second. Are you ready? to the old folks. Okay, can we see it? And I just say it that way because it says preaching to the old folks in the newspaper, which I thought was awesome. That's the young people of our church. So they would go and they would preach a sermon and they would lead in hymns. And it says that they took turns sharing their testimonies. And I think it was maybe three different assisted living facilities. Is that better? here in town. But they also went into prisons. That's the next. So there they are with some of the prisoners, leading them in hymns, and and they would preach the gospel to these guys. And then they invested more in the platform. So in 1952, they built the sanctuary that you're sitting in right now. Here's a picture of it. It's this building. And again, why did they do this? I don't mean to be tedious, but I am trying to make a point. Probably you figured that out at this point. So that they could build a platform from which to launch even more ministry into this city and into the world, and also because the kingdom of heaven is worth the sacrifice. So they made the sacrifice and launched the ministries. And then in 1953, they formally established a missions ministry by adopting 23 international missions and committing to expand to 50 by 1956. In 1953, it's good that you're seated or maybe it's just good that I'm seated, they committed 51% of their annual operating budgets to missions. 51%! That's pretty humbling. And they sent missionaries out all over the world, including Tom and Catherine Watson and their three kids. These are young families. These guys got on a boat and went to Japan with their young family and the support of this church. And Catherine Watson died of cancer there at the age of 36. And then there's Ike. That's what he went by. His name was Bill and Dottie Skolton. They went to the Belgian Congo. They actually had five kids. I think this is a picture of them before they left. 
And then they have three more over there. And I want you to remember their names because I'm going to come back to them in a minute. In 1956, this church from this platform planted the Plaza Presbyterian Church, which is in Tamarack today. It's First Church West. In 1959, for $50,000, they purchased and converted a fire station on Commercial Boulevard into a church, and they planted Coral Ridge Presbyterian Church. And curiously enough, Rob Pacienza, who's the executive pastor there and presently the senior minister and a good friend of mine, used to work here on our staff, texted me last night. He didn't even know that I was going to be talking about this. He texted me a picture of the letter that the pastor of this church, Bethany Presbyterian, sent to a D. James Kennedy, who I think was in Decatur, Georgia, to see if he'd be willing to come down and consider planting a church in North Fort Lauderdale, and they felt like that was going to be the most productive Southern Presbyterian church in the whole region. What a vision! Texted him back, I said, man... You need to like frame that. You need to hang on to that. That is a piece of very valuable history. And it's astonishing to see how the Lord would take a a letter and use that through Coral Ridge, through evangelism explosion and so many other things and so many other ways to impact literally the world. It's pretty amazing. And I could keep going and going, but, you know, eventually you're going to want to eat lunch. So... Let me stop for a minute, and I'm going to ask you some questions, and they're somewhat rhetorical, I guess. But I want you to consider this carefully. Did the land that these guys purchased and the buildings that these guys built help or hurt their effectiveness in reaching the city and in reaching the world? In other words, did it hold them back in doing that, or did it propel them forward? Did they decrease the amount of resources and services that they were then able to pour into the city and into the world, or did they ultimately increase it? Were they things that they built for themselves so that they could hide themselves and hide their families and shelter their resources from the city and the world? Or were they investments that they made in a platform from which they could produce more and more and more outward-facing disciples of Jesus Christ, and therefore then also a more and more effective outward-facing ministry to the city and to the world, and that they could then leave behind to generation after generation after generation after generation and then to us, all of which, including us, right now, use these facilities for those purposes. Because I think it answers itself. And I hope that you see the pattern. They invest in the platform and they launch ministries. And then they invest in the platform and they launch ministries. And then they invest in the platform and they launch ministries. The pattern is clear. And that's exactly what we're trying to do. That's it. And the reason I point that out is because I know it's easy to look at a building, which we're talking about a building, and renovations around the property and to go, man, how is that going to help us minister to the city and to the world? Seems like a lot to tie up, doesn't it? Okay, so here's how. By giving us the additional space and the better space that we need to produce more and more outward-facing disciples of Jesus and thus a more and more outward-facing ministry, both directly as this will give us as Rio Vista Community Church and Bethany Christian School the ability to maximize our effectiveness in doing that right here where we're at and therefore then also place us in the best position to stay right where we're at, and then to peel off pastors and people and start other churches in the city the way these people did. That's the answer. And here's the thing. 
I think that the treasure that is the kingdom of heaven is worth the sacrifice. And Calvin got it, and his graduates got it, and their families got it, and our founding fathers and mothers got it. But I want to close with Ike Scholten, who's the husband and the father of that one missionary family that I told you went to the um, Belgian Congo. They went to the Belgian Congo shortly, like a year or so after uh, the Belgian government released government of that area to the natives, which, you know, just brought chaos because now you don't have one singular body in control that has the power and ability to govern over all of the various factions and tribes. And so it became a very dangerous part of the world, and it was not uncommon for missionaries, foreign missionaries, to be rounded up, to be imprisoned, to be tortured, and to be killed. And that's exactly what happened to Ike Scholten. He was imprisoned by some Congolese rebels, and then he was killed by them on September 16, 1964, at the age of 32, leaving behind his wife and five small kids. And this is in an article that we read about him, and I'm not kidding. His last recorded words as they led him into the prison, this is one of your missionaries, it's part of your history, was, I'll see you in heaven. That's it. is the name of the article, I'll, t- I'll see you in heaven. <laughs> and I'll bet he didn't say it begrudgingly. Dutifully, because, you know, it was the right thing to say in the moment. Guys, that is the joyful hope of everyone who believes in Christ. That's what Christ has claimed and won for us. That's the reason why these guys did everything that they did. And that's what we're seeking to build on for the future. So, what is the kingdom of heaven worth? It's worth our everything. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you for the rich history that you give to us, Lord, not only here at this church, but as we find it in your word. God, as we look into your word, we recognize that we are a part of a people of God, of a faith community that goes all the way back. We come now to your table a table that you prepared for your disciples and for us on the night that you were betrayed. A table that holds forth the emblems of your sacrifice. It gives to us in ways that speak to our senses, to our hearts, to our minds, to our hands, to our taste, to our smell. Just how much you value the kingdom. You didn't just speak these things, Lord, to us in your word. You manifested the value of the kingdom through the laying down of your life. And so then, God, impress upon us the value of your kingdom. Give to us the joy of knowing that through faith in you, we have found our place within it. Speak to us, God, as we prepare our hearts to come to your table and to receive. And remind us of who we are in you, that we might meet you at this table and be strengthened by this meal. So do these things, we pray, for your glory. And our good in Jesus' name. Amen.